You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 107 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, over the last two weeks, we've looked at the background to the world's first battle between two ironclad warships, as we've discussed the development and construction of both the CSS Virginia and the USS Monitor. But this week, we're going to keep you guys in suspense for one more show as far as the battle between the Virginia and Monitor that took place on Sunday, March 9th, 1862, because we're going to use this episode to take a closer look at the dramatic events that took place on Saturday, March 8th, when the Virginia steamed down the Elizabeth River out into Hampton Roads and proceeded to wreak havoc on the blockading Union fleet there. We mentioned before that 61-year-old Captain Franklin Buchanan was the officer chosen by Confederate Secretary of the Navy, Stephen Mallory, to command the CSS Virginia. But in late February, when Buchanan arrived at the Gosport Navy Yard, he found that the ironclad was still far from ready for action. Not only was the construction crew and dockyard staff still working on the ship, But although the Navy Department had been hard at work procuring ammunition for the Virginia, she was still woefully short of powder. In fact, her magazine wouldn't be sufficiently filled until March 7th. Buchanan also found that the ironclad was still short of crewmen. And so, while the Virginia's capable executive officer, Lieutenant Catsby App R. Jones, supervised other last-minute preparations, Buchanan sent Lieutenant John Wood, the grandson of President Zachary Taylor, to ask the Confederate Army for help. Wood met with the general commanding the nearby troops, and he received permission to ask for volunteers from among the rebel soldiers. Two hundred men volunteered, and of them, Wood selected eighty artillerymen, or former sailors, to serve on board the Virginia. While final preparations were underway, Buchanan pondered how best to use his novel new command to attack the vessels of the enemy's blockading squadron. He knew that the Virginia's deep draft was going to be a problem. The ironclad drew 22 feet of water, and since the waters of the Elizabeth River and Hampton Roads were a maze of shallows and narrow channels, she was going to be difficult to maneuver, and even with a good pilot on board, Buchanan would be severely restricted as to where he could safely steam. Nevertheless, he wrote to Mallory, saying, On Thursday night, the 6th instant, I contemplate leaving here to appear before the enemy's ships at Newport News. 
Should no accident occur to this ship, I feel confident that the acts of the Virginia will give proof of the desire of her officers and crew to meet the views of the department as far as practicable, end quote. That was Buchanan's way of saying that he was reasonably confident the ironclad could accomplish Mallory's stated aim of breaking the Union blockade of the Chesapeake. But Buchanan then went on to burst Mallory's pipe dream that the big ironclad would be able to then go on to bombard Washington, D.C. He wrote, quote, From the best and most reliable information I can obtain from experienced pilots, it will be impossible to ascend the Potomac in the Virginia with the present draft of water nearly 22 feet, end quote. As he stated to Mallory, Buchanan's original plan was to slip quietly down the Elizabeth River after dark on Thursday, March 6th, and take up a position a short distance off Newport News. And um, Newport News was, is, on the north side of the roadstead, where the James River comes down into Hampton Roads. Right. But anyway, after taking up a position a short distance off Newport News during the night, at dawn on Saturday the 7th, Buchanan would surprise the nearest ships of the blockading squadron, destroy them, and then shell the nearby Federal shore batteries. But the elements, and also some final preparations, forced Buchanan to delay his departure. Some iffy weather led the pilots to advise Buchanan to wait before proceeding down the Elizabeth. And then Lieutenant Jones begged for some extra time to spread a thick coating of tallow over the sides and top of the Virginia's casemate, since he supposed, quote, that it would increase the tendency of the projectiles to glance, end quote. And so, in other words, he was hoping the slickery tallow would encourage enemy shot and shells to glance off the ironclad. And kids, in case you're wondering... Tallow is made from beef or mutton fat, and people used to, and maybe still do, I guess, uh, use it to make candles and soap and whatnot. And at any rate, I wonder what it smelled like to have all that stuff smeared all over the outside of the Virginia. Not very good, I bet. But I don't know. I mean, I can't claim to have a lot of personal experience with tallow. Okay, so anyway, at that point, Buchanan hoped to try again the next night, the night of Friday the 7th. But then all five of the local pilots who were to guide the ironclad said they wouldn't assume responsibility for taking her down the river and over to Newport News at night. They all agreed that such a passage would be much, much too risky. And so Buchanan had no choice but to wait until Saturday morning to take the Virginia out. Even as he waited, on Friday, the ironclad finally received the last of her precious gunpowder. Buchanan also received a final letter from Stephen Mallory suggesting that if an attack on Washington was out of the question, perhaps the Virginia could attack New York City. Mallory suggested that after destroying the blockading squadron at Hampton Roads, the Confederate ironclad could, in a smooth sea, make the passage up the coast to New York and, quote, once in the bay, she could shell and burn the city and the shipping. Such an event would eclipse all the glories of the combats at sea. End quote. Mallory then went on to express his ultimate hopes for the Virginia, stating to Buchanan that after such an attack, quote, peace would inevitably follow. Bankers would withdraw their capital from the city. The Brooklyn Navy Yard and its magazines and all the lower part of the city would be destroyed 
and such an event by a single ship would do more to achieve our immediate independence than the results of many campaigns. End quote. Now, the knowledge that in the spring of 1862, the Confederate Secretary of the Navy was perfectly willing to destroy much of the largest city in North America in order to break the Union's will to carry on the fight is instructive, especially considering that there are those who still, today, roundly condemn Northern generals like Sherman and Sheridan for the measures they took later in the war to break the South's ability to carry on the fight. Well, anyway, what the Virginia might achieve for the Confederacy was at that point beyond Mallory's hands. It now all depended on Franklin Buchanan and his untried, ad hoc crew and what they could accomplish in their remarkable but untested vessel. At 11 o'clock on Saturday morning, the Virginia's crewmen cast off all lines and the ironclad steamed away from Gosport Navy Yard, heading north down the Elizabeth River toward the Federal Fleet. Workmen had been busy trying to complete their task and stayed on board until the last minute. The last mechanics literally jumped off onto the dock as the ironclad was pulling away and out into the channel. Even then, the gunport shields had still not been fitted, and finishing work, such as the construction of internal compartments, would have to wait until after the Virginia's maiden voyage. Lieutenant Wood later recalled that prior to her sailing into battle, quote, not a gun had been fired, hardly a revolution of her engines had been made, end quote. Neither the Virginia's officers nor men knew quite what to expect. The ungainly beast was going into battle without the luxury of being fully completed or even having run sea trials to test her performance. Before departing, Buchanan had steadfastly maintained the fiction that the ironclad was only going out to perform trials on the Elizabeth River, but still on Saturday morning, all along both sides of the river, people lined the banks. The Virginia's surgeon, Dinwiddie B. Phillips, said that, quote, Everything was quiet and calm, and nothing indicated any departure from the usual routine of affairs, except that the shores and landings on either side of us were thronged with people, most of them perhaps attracted by our novel appearance and desirous of witnessing our movements through the water. End quote. The people on shore would have ample opportunity to witness the Virginia's movements through the water, since the big ironclad was moving slowly. It was 10 miles from the wharf in the Navy Yard up to Hampton Roads. The Virginia had a top speed of 5 or 6 knots, 7 with the current, so her passage down the river would take at least one and a half hours, giving the spectators on shore plenty of time to watch her passage. To the inexperienced eyes of the onlookers, all might have appeared to be going smoothly, but in fact the ironclad's steering mechanism was proving to be decidedly unpredictable, and two miles down the river, the Virginia requested a tow from an accompanying armed tug. A second armed tug was called upon to keep the big ironclad's bow pointed downriver. At some point, Buchanan asked Chief Engineer H. Ashton Ramsey what would happen to the engines and boilers if the Virginia were to collide with another ship. Ramsey replied that they would take the shock of the impact and be all right. At that, Buchanan told Ramsey, quote, I am going to ram the Cumberland. 
I am told she has the new rifled guns, the only ones in their whole fleet we have cause to fear. The moment we are in the roads, I'm going to make right for her and ram her. At about 12.30, the Virginia and her escorts had drawn level with Sewell's Point at the mouth of the Elizabeth River, and for the first time, her crew could make out the enemy ships over on the north side of Hampton Roads. Ramsey, the chief engineer, remembered seeing, quote, Congress and Cumberland, tall and stately, with every line and spar clearly defined against the blue March sky, end quote. There were actually over 60 federal vessels in Hampton Roads on the morning of March 8th. There were warships, but also transports, supply ships, tugs, dispatch vessels, and tenders. Some were steamships, but most relied on sails, and all were wooden-hulled, lacking any sort of armor. The Union warships that were present included an odd assortment of vessels, from the great steam frigates to former New York City ferry boats that had been converted into gunboats. The flagship of the blockading squadron was the 43-gun steam frigate USS Minnesota. Rear Admiral Louis Goldsboro happened to be away on Saturday morning. He was down at Hatteras Inlet, so Captain John Marston of the 44-gun steam frigate USS Roanoke was actually the senior naval officer in Hampton Roads when the Virginia appeared. And while the Roanoke was one of the Union Navy's powerful steam frigates, her engines were in the process of being overhauled, and her propeller shaft had been sent to Brooklyn Navy Yard. So in order to join the fight, she would have to use her sails or else be towed into action. The flagship, the Minnesota, was anchored near the Vanderbilt, one of the most unusual additions to the blockading squadron. The Vanderbilt was a transatlantic sidewheel steamship owned by the millionaire Cornelius Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt had volunteered the use of his ship in stopping and destroying the Virginia. He thought perhaps the steamer might do the job by ramming the big Confederate ironclad. And so there were plans to reinforce the Vanderbilt's bow with timber and to give her side some iron plating, but none of that work had been started by the time the Virginia made her sortie, and so in the coming battle the Vanderbilt would do precisely nothing. On Saturday morning, the Minnesota, the Roanoke, and another steam frigate, the 42-gun St. Lawrence, were all anchored off Fort Monroe, to the northeast of the mouth of the Elizabeth River. The Congress and the Cumberland lay to the northwest, off Newport News Point. The USS Congress was a sailing frigate, and she was armed with 50 smoothbore guns. She was short her full complement of 480 men. On March 8th, she only had 400 men aboard, and even then, 89 of that number were not sailors, but soldiers from the 99th New York Infantry Regiment. The Congress also had two captains on board that Saturday morning. Commander W.B. Smith had just handed over his ship to Lieutenant Joseph B. Smith, but the commander remained on board, waiting for passage to his new appointment. And in one of those instances, when the Civil War was quite literally brother fighting against brother, the paymaster of the Congress was McKean Buchanan, the brother of the commander of the Confederate ironclad. But neither Franklin nor McKean knew the other was on either the Virginia or Congress. Just to the west of the Congress lay the USS Cumberland, a sail-powered sloop carrying 24 guns, including one rifled cannon mounted in her stern. The Cumberland's captain was away from his ship on the morning of the 8th, so the executive officer, Lieutenant George Morris, was left in command. Not long after 11 a.m., signalers manning a federal lookout station on Newport News Point 
reported seeing smoke rising to the south, far up the Elizabeth River. It was obvious to them that some form of rebel naval activity was going on, and so the officer commanding the Union troops encamped near the point sent a telegram over to Fort Monroe, claiming that the enemy ironclad was making a sortie. But apparently neither that officer nor the commander at the fort, Major General John Wool, saw fit to share their suspicions with their naval colleagues, and so when the Virginia emerged from the Elizabeth River and appeared off Sewell's Point, the Union blockading squadron was taken pretty much completely by surprise. It wasn't until a quarter till one that the armed steam tug Zuwab at Newport News Point noticed the smoke up the Elizabeth River. The Zuwab was acting as the tug and guard vessel for the Congress in Cumberland, so she steamed over alongside the Cumberland, where the officer of the deck had also spotted the smoke to the south. That officer, Lieutenant Tom Selfridge, ordered the Zuwab to investigate, so the tug headed toward Pig Point on the southern shore of Hampton Roads. Her commander, Acting Master Henry Rainey, later reported, quote, It did not take us long to find out, for we had not gone over two miles when we saw what to all appearances looked like the roof of a very large barn belching forth smoke as from a chimney fire. The Zouav fired her 30-pounder Parrot rifled gun a half dozen times at the oncoming rebel ironclad, and then the tug spun around and headed back north toward Newport News. It was 20 minutes after 1 o'clock on the afternoon of Saturday, March 8, 1862, and the Zouav had just fired the opening shots of the Battle of Hampton Roads. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As the Virginia and her two small escorts emerged from the Elizabeth River, they could see the anchored Congress in Cumberland across the way. The Confederate sailors could see that in their rigging, the Yankee seamen had hung their washing, placing, according to custom, their white garments on the starboard rigging and their blues on the port. Lieutenant Wood said, quote, Nothing indicated that we were expected. Franklin Buchanan had been up on the top deck of the ironclad, but now he stepped down to the gun deck and finally announced to the assembled crewmen that this sortie was more than just a trial run, which everyone on board almost certainly knew by that point anyway. Then Buchanan gave the men a short pep talk and then ordered beat to quarters. As the men went to their battle stations, Buchanan spoke to his officers, explaining that the Virginia would have to dispose of the Cumberland and Congress first before the other federal warships could come over from Fort Monroe. 
he reiterated his intention to head straight for the Cumberland and ram her. At about 1.30, the Virginia cast off her tow line, but the two Confederate tugs still steamed alongside the big ironclad for a short while, but then the fragile little vessels peeled off to stay safely out in the middle of Hampton Roads, away from the enemy frigates, and the Virginia sailed on alone. And then at 2 o'clock, with the Cumberland less than a mile away, Buchanan signaled Lieutenant Charles Sims, commanding the ironclad's bow pivot gun, one of the Brooks rifles, to open fire. As the rebel ironclad approached, the nearby Congress held her fire until the enemy ship was around 500 yards away, and then, according to one of her officers, quote, tried her with a solid shot from one of our stern guns, the projectile glancing off her forward casemate like a drop of water off a duck's back, end quote. The Virginia replied with a round of grape, which killed or wounded a dozen sailors on board the frigate. Next, the Congress fired her full broadside of 25 guns, but a Federal soldier watching from shore recalled that the frigate's shots, quote, rattled on the armored Merrimack without the least injury, end quote. Commander Smith on the Cumberland recalled that the shots bounced off the ironclad's casemate, quote, like India rubber balls. By that point, the Virginia had closed to within 300 yards, and she turned to present her starboard broadside to the Congress, then fired. Dr. Edward Shippen on the Congress recalled, quote, One of her shells dismounted an 8-inch gun and either killed or wounded every one of her gun's crew, while the slaughter at the other guns was fearful. There were comparatively few wounded. The fragments of the huge shells she threw killed outright as a general thing. Our clean and handsome gun deck was in an instant changed into a slaughter pen, with lopped-off legs and arms and bleeding blackened bodies scattered about by the shells. End quote. The ironclad then fired a second broadside, overturning more guns on the Congress and blowing men clear over the side. Paymaster Buchanan on the Congress survived the devastating broadsides delivered by his brother's ironclad. He and the rest of the crew of the badly damaged Federal ship expected the Virginia would come about in order to fire her port broadside, but instead the ironclad continued on its course, headed straight for the Cumberland. Since some of the Virginia's shot had been heated red hot before they were fired, the Congress was left burning, with her decks covered in blood and gore. Lieutenant Smith realized his badly damaged ship was likely to go down under him, so he ordered her anchor cables cut and called on the Zouave to come to his aid. He had the tug tow the Congress into shallower water to prevent her from sinking, and there the stricken frigate ran aground in 17 feet of water, effectively becoming a battered wooden fort, immobile but still ready to fight. Sailors used pumps to begin to fight the fires, while the wounded were taken below to Dr. Shippen. Meanwhile, the Virginia continued on, headed straight for the Cumberland. It was now about three o'clock, and the Virginia was headed straight toward the Cumberland's beam amidships, the ideal angle for a ramming attempt. The sloop fired on the ironclad, but the shots failed to penetrate the rebel ship's casemate. The Virginia fired on the Cumberland with her bow gun, while her starboard battery engaged the Union shore batteries on Newport News Point. The shore batteries responded, creating a hailstorm of fire, but none of it affected the Virginia in the least. The big ironclad continued surging forward, lining herself up to ram the Cumberland. The Virginia's crew was told to brace for impact, and then at the last moment, 
her engine room was given the signal to disengage the ironclad's engines, then to go astern. Chief Engineer Ramsey recalled, quote, There was an ominous pause, then a crash, shaking us all off our feet, end quote. The Virginia's 1,500-pound iron ram plowed into the side of the Cumberland, crushing the sloop's wooden hull. But since the ram bolted to the bow of the Virginia buried itself deep inside the stricken Federal ship, that meant that as the Cumberland quickly started to settle in the water, for a moment it seemed as if the sloop would take her attacker down with her. In his book, Hampton Roads, 1862, First Clash of the Ironclads, Angus Constam writes, quote, the two ships were almost touching, and the Cumberland fired three broadsides in quick succession, the shot scraping down the ironclad's casemate. The shots shattered the muzzles of two of the Virginia's broadside smoothbores. On the Cumberland, Lieutenant Thomas Selfridge described the view from the sloop. Cheer after cheer went up from the Cumberland, only to be followed by exclamations of rage and despair as the enemy slowly moved away. The Virginia had managed to free herself, leaving her ram embedded inside the Cumberland. Water rushed into the huge hole in her hull, which one witness described as being wide enough to let in a horse and cart, end quote. The defiant gunners aboard the sinking Cumberland remained at their stations, continuing to fire at the rebel ironclad even as their ship sank under them. One of those shots hit a bow gun port on the Virginia, killing two of the ironclad's crew and wounding several others, and those were the first Confederate casualties that day. As the Virginia backed away, she went on firing at the sloop, and through it all, the Federal shore batteries also kept up their fire. Above the din of battle, a Confederate officer hailed the Cumberland and called on her to surrender, but the reply was shouted back, Never, we will sink alongside with our colors flying. On the Cumberland, the order was given to abandon ship, and the crew began throwing themselves overboard. A few of the wounded were loaded onto boats, but many of the badly wounded below decks drowned. Nearby, sailors on the Congress, watching from their stranded ship, saw the confusion as the Cumberland's crew abandoned ship, and then watched as the sloop lurched, quote, Then she went down like a bar of iron, but her flag still flew from her masthead. All was lost except honor, end quote. And a Confederate paid tribute to the Cumberland's crew, saying that they were, quote, game to the last. It was now about 20 minutes after three, and after her battle with the Cumberland, the Virginia was now facing away from the rest of the Federal fleet. The shore was to starboard, so that meant she needed to turn to port to maneuver herself back toward the enemy's ships, but it would take about 30 minutes to turn the ungainly ironclad through 180 degrees. Meanwhile, the three gunboats of the Confederates' James River Flotilla, led by the CSS Patrick Henry, had come out and used the distraction of the battle to steam over to the mouth of the Elizabeth River. While the rebel ironclad was attacking the Congress and Cumberland off Newport News Point, the other Federal warships of the blockading squadron had attempted to come to their aid. The Minnesota, however, ran aground about one and a half miles east of Newport News Point, and the St. Lawrence also ran aground nearby. The remaining steam frigate, the Roanoke, she whose engines were being overhauled, was towed under the guns of Fort Monroe. 
By 4 p.m., the Virginia had managed to turn around and was back in position near the stranded Congress. Fires were still burning on the frigate, and her decks were still covered with dead and wounded, but her colors were still flying, and so the Virginia maneuvered so that her broadside was facing the vulnerable stern of the Federal ship, and at a range of 150 yards, the Virginia opened fire on the Congress once again. As the ironclad raked the frigate's stern, the shot smashed through the stricken Federal ship from end to end, and the resulting carnage on board the Congress was indescribable. The frigate's doctor said, quote, Men were being killed and maimed every minute, end quote. One of those killed was Lieutenant Smith. That meant command reverted to Commander Smith, and after enduring the deadly pounding for a half hour, he decided to surrender. Two white flags were raised, and the Virginia ceased fire. The ironclad sent a small boat over to the battered Congress to formally accept the Federal ship's surrender, and the two Confederate armed tugs that had been hovering nearby steamed up and drew alongside the Congress to take off the ship's officers as prisoners. But scarcely had the two rebel tugs come up to the Congress when they came under fire from the Union Army shore batteries. Federal soldiers on the shoreline also added their musket fire to the barrage. Franklin Buchanan was irate that the Yankees on shore were interfering in the peaceable surrender of the Congress, so he ordered that the heated shot be fired into the stricken frigate once again until she was well and truly ablaze. Just after giving that order, Buchanan, who was standing out on the Virginia spar deck, was hit by a rifle bullet. As he was being carried below, he repeated his command, shouting, That ship must be burned! While a heated shot was fired into the Congress from point-blank range, and as fires on the frigate started to rage from stem to stern, the crew abandoned ship, escaping overboard. Many of the wounded could not be saved and burned to death. McKean Buchanan was one of those who were able to escape overboard, and he managed to make it to shore, dazed but unhurt. Meanwhile, on the Virginia, with Franklin Buchanan wounded, Lieutenant Jones was now in command of the ironclad, With the Congress ablaze and clearly doomed, Jones turned his attention to the stranded Minnesota. He quickly realized, though, that the big ironclad's draft was too deep to allow her to approach the helpless frigate, so the Virginia opened fire on the Minnesota from long range. But visibility was becoming a problem as darkness was starting to fall across Hampton Roads. And with the tide running out, the pilots on board the ironclad advised Jones that it would be best to break off the action and withdraw to deeper water. And so about 6.30, Jones reluctantly ordered the Virginia to cease fire and steam south toward the mouth of the Elizabeth River. By 8 p.m., the Virginia was riding at anchor under the guns of the Confederate shore batteries at Sewell's Point. Buchanan and the other wounded were taken ashore, along with the bodies of the two crewmen who had been killed. The Union prisoners were sent upriver to Norfolk. The single Confederate ironclad had just inflicted a humiliating defeat on the U.S. Navy. The Virginia had destroyed two of the most powerful warships in the Federal fleet. Over 250 Federal sailors had been killed, and many wounded. Although the St. Lawrence was refloated, the Minnesota remained hard aground, and everyone fully expected the rebel ironclad would come back out on Sunday morning and smash the stranded frigate to bits. The Congress continued to burn all evening until about 30 minutes after midnight when the fire finally reached her magazines and she blew up in a spectacular explosion. 
By that time, however, as you guys know, the USS Monitor had arrived on the scene. While the Congress was still burning, the Federal Ironclad had come alongside the Roanoke and received orders to guard the Minnesota. And so, when the Confederate Ironclad came out to resume the battle the following morning, instead of battering wooden ships again, she would be fighting another Ironclad. It would be the world's first battle between two Ironclad warships. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Confederate Ironclad versus Union Ironclad, Hampton Roads, 1862, by Ron Field. As you guys will recall, our book recommendation last week was a volume in Osprey Publishing's campaign series, and our recommendation this week is a book in Osprey's dual series. That's D-U-E-L. Anyway, Confederate Ironclad versus Union Ironclad by Ron Field has more um, technical information than last week's recommendation, but don't let that scare you. It's all very user-friendly, and there are cutaway diagrams of both the Monitor and the Virginia that alone are worth the price of the book, or at least we think so. As always, y'all can find all of our book recommendations by heading over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And at the website, there are also links to our Facebook page and our Twitter feed, so don't forget to check those out. And as we wrap things up, we have a couple of people to thank for donations. Clara from California and Luke from New York. And a new member of the Strawfoot Brigade, Brian, who hails from Abraham Lincoln's hometown of Springfield, Illinois. Um, Brian also sent us a message saying that he was watching the classic movie Young Mr. Lincoln the other day. And early in the film, some militia were learning to march as a sergeant was shouting, Strawfoot, Hayfoot, Strawfoot, Hayfoot. So, pretty funny. So, a big thank you to Clara, Luke, and Brian. And then we also want to thank Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music y'all hear at the beginning and end of every show. And last but not least, thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.